1916, a poem by Robert Frost entitled The Road Less Traveled was published in The Mountain Interval, and it reads like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that the passing there had warred them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That poem resonated with the generation and is still around almost a hundred years later because we all know the sentiment of what it's like to stand at a crossroads and have to make a decision which way we're going to go. The truth of the matter is that all of us, at every moment in our lives, are on a path, a particular road. And the question that needs to be asked, but seldom is, is not what road are we on, but where does the road that we're on end? That's a very important question to ask. Almost 2,000 years before Robert Frost wrote his poem about the road less traveled, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said the same thing this way. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In some ways, you could say that that sums up one of the central messages of the Bible. Which road are we on? And it addresses the central issue, not of the path, but the destination. Where we're headed for in the present path that we are on. That's the question that's of the utmost importance. As we're in the book of Judges, the children of Israel have come to their own crossroads. Moses is dead. Joshua now is dead. There's no leader to replace them, and they find themselves in a state of decentralized tribalism. They've been led to a certain point, and now it's time for them to choose, to make a decision if they're going to continue in the way that they've been instructed and told to go, or whether they'll rebel and go their own way. Thus they stand at a crossroad. It splits in two here. As they stand there, they look, and it seems by first appearances that they both go the same direction. As far as they can see with the natural eye, there's no consequence to choosing either or. The one, it's very narrow. The steps are very exacting. There's not much room for variation. You have to put your feet in the proper place if you want to survive, and that path is straight as an arrow. The other option Well, that path is a little bit more windy. It's a little bit wider. There's a little bit more room for variation, a little bit more room to stretch out, if you would, more flexibility on that path. The lines aren't quite as definite, and it certainly is a whole lot easier. Which path are they going to take? By all appearances, it seems like it's kind of indifferent. It's not really going to matter which way they choose. They're both going the same direction. Yes, it's true that Moses and Joshua both gave us instruction to take the straight and the narrow. But they're dead now. They're not here. And the choice really lies with us. The children of Israel have seen firsthand what sin does to a nation. They know what happened to the Egyptians. There was a multiplicity of gods that were served in Egypt. That led to a corruption amongst the people that landed the people in God's judgment. There was corruption and it caused destruction of their people. 
They saw it again with the Canaanites. Again, a society where there was a multiplicity of gods, much variety, a wide path. You could write your own way if you wanted. You could choose how you wanted to worship, how you wanted to live. But again, that society was riddled with corruption and ultimately ended with destruction under the judgment of God. They've also seen, the children of Israel, what God can do in a nation. They've seen how God can rescue and redeem a people. How He can instruct them and then preserve them and then bring them into their inheritance and then prosper them in the way that He sends them forth to go. They've seen what God can do to a nation. They've also been warned by Moses and also by Joshua. Warned that they're to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan when they come into the land. That they're not to intermingle with them because the cultural magnetism of their pagan ways would overpower the knowledge they had of God and His right and true ways. And so they've been warned to drive out the people of the land so as not to be corrupted themselves because, the warning, if they were corrupted, then they would suffer the same fate and destiny as both the Egyptians and the Canaanites. In chapter 1, we saw the decision that they made. They chose to take the wider, windy, easier path. It's not much consequence. We're pretty much doing the same thing. We're behaving essentially the same way we've just chosen at the crossroads of compromise to take the easier path instead. They opted for a less restrictive road. And now the rest of the book of Judges is the testament to what happens when the people of God take the wrong way at the crossroads of compromise. For you and I, often it happens, for Christians in general, that we make an assumption that because we're saved, because we've given our lives to Christ, or because we attend church regularly, that that automatically, by default, means that we've chosen the way that leads to life. That we are on the straight and narrow path. I want to challenge that for just a minute. The pages of the scriptures are peppered with the testimonies of people who knew God and yet destroyed their lives, ruined them through the choices, decisions, and the compromises that they made. I think of Lot, a man so corrupted that we wouldn't even know he was saved unless Peter told us in the New Testament that he was. I think of Samson, who ruined and squandered the gifts that God had given to him and spent the prime years of his adult life grinding blindly at a mill. We'll look at his story later on in the book of Judges. In fact, such a waste was his life that more fruit was born in his death than during the time of his life. Think of King Saul, a man with great privilege and potential, who out of disobedience and compromise squandered the potential blessing of God and his life ultimately ended as nothing. Think of Gehazi, who could have been the successor for Elisha the prophet, one of the greatest prophets of Old Testament times. But through covetousness and a love of money, he wasted it, he squandered it. And it goes on, I think of Demas and Jonah and many of the kings. And unfortunately, most of the people of God that lived during the period of the judges. They knew God, but their lives were lived on the path that leads to destruction. And that destruction was then reflected in their lives. Now I ask you, what road are you on tonight? And even more important than that, where does that road ultimately end? Both now on this world, and where does it land you for eternity? You say, that's a great question, but is there any way that we can really know? How can we really know what road we're actually on, and if we're on the right road in the will of God ourselves? Is there a way to actually assess ourselves and to see if we really are living the right way? Yes. The answer is yes. The two roads that the Bible speaks of are as old as time itself. They existed in the Garden of Eden from the moment that God planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gave Adam a choice. Those same two roads will exist as long as this world exists in its current course. And thus, those two roads have landmarks on them. 
Things that you can see along the way that will give to you an indication as to whether or not you are on the road that you're supposed to be on or if you're on the road that you're not. Judges chapter 2 gives to us a testimony of what those landmarks are if you happen to be on the wrong road. Judges 2, and I've called this message, Landmarks on the Path that Leads to Destruction. And then the other half of it is the truth that sets you free. We won't get to that tonight. But in the following chapters. What are the landmarks that give to us an indication that we might be on the road that leads to destruction? Let's get into the text. Chapter 2, verse 1. They've just finished compromising. And it says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. We're introduced right off the bat to this character who is called here the angel of the Lord. It's not his first appearance. We read of him often throughout the Old Testament. We see him meet with Abraham in Genesis 18, alongside of him two angels as they came to Abram on their way to see what was going on at Sodom. We see the angel of the Lord wrestling with Jacob there that night when Jacob was running from Laban and fretting the facing of Esau that would be coming in his near future. We see him in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when he met with Moses and spoke to him there, calling him, commissioning him. We saw him in Joshua chapter 5 called there the captain of the host of the Lord who came with sword drawn and clothed in battle attire. We see him here a few more times throughout the book of Judges and then again and again throughout the Old Testament. The question is, who is this? There are some that suggest that this is simply just a messenger speaking for the Lord. The word angel can be translated messenger, and therefore they say, well, this is just a messenger speaking in God's name. But most Bible scholars and theologians agree that this isn't just an angel, but that this is what's called a theophany or a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That it's an appearance of God to his people prior to the coming of Christ in the flesh. And that that's who's speaking here to these people. Notice that it says there also in verse 1 that he came up from Gilgal to Bochim. If you remember from Joshua, Gilgal was the place where they had the center of their operations. It was where their camp was. Where the fort was, if you would, after battle, they would return to Gilgal. It was the place that spoke of victory. It was from there that they had victory over their enemies. But we see the angel of the Lord departing from the place of victory and going to a place called Bochim, which we will learn in a few verses means weeping. And it's a symbolic transition of what's taking place within the nation. They've gone from a place of victory to a place of weeping. They've gone backwards, downhill. And then notice the indictment that the Lord gives to them. He tells them four things that he did for them. He said, I led you, I brought you, I swore, promised to your fathers, and I said to you, I will never break my covenant with you. Four things that God can testify, I've done this for you. And there's but one thing that I've asked of you. And that is that you make no covenant with the people of this land but that they be completely driven out. And he says, here's my problem. You've disobeyed my voice. You didn't do what it was that I asked you to do. You chose compromise. And therefore, God says to his people, you shall have the fruit of your ways. They're going to be thorns in your sides, and they are going to be a snare to you. Now, how did this encounter between God and his people translate into their experience? And this is where we begin to see the landmarks on the road that leads to destruction. 
It doesn't take long for them to walk on this path of compromise before they begin to see the bad fruit of their decision. The first, if you're taking notes, and we see it in the next two verses, is that there is joy loss. You say, wait a minute, that's not a word. You could say joyless, but you can't say joy loss. No, that's exactly what happened. Joy loss. And that's the first landmark on the path that leads to destruction. Look with me at verse 4. It says, So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping in the Hebrew. And it says that they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, at first reading, you might look at this and you might say, well, wait a minute, this seems like it wasn't a negative thing at all, but this is actually a good thing. Weeping plus sacrifice, it looks to me, it looks a whole lot like repentance. Like these people are acknowledging the error of their ways, owning it before God, and that they're in a place of contrition, in a place of repentance. The answer to that is no. They are sorry, but they're not sorry because of their actions. They're sorry because of the consequences. There's sorrow, but not over the offense that they've given to God, but rather over the thorn and the scourge that the remaining people will become to them. We know that because they don't change direction. Repentance means to change direction. Repentance does not mean weeping. Repentance does not mean sacrifice. Repentance means change. And that they don't. They're willing to weep, they're willing to give, but they're not willing to change, and they don't. And thus their sorrow is exposed for what it is. It's sorrow because of the consequences. This became a pattern with the children of Israel. In fact, it's still a pattern with the people of God even to the present day. Repentance or weeping or sorrow because of the consequences of sin rather than the action of the sins. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 26, the prophet speaks to the people and he says to them there, he says, as a thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. In other words, the thief is only ashamed because he's found. If he had gotten away with it and no one had ever found out, if there was no consequence, there would be no sorrow and he would continue on in the very same way. But because he is found... He's ashamed. That's not real repentance. Because it's sorrow over consequence and not over action. And that's what happens here. And so this isn't a good thing. It's not repentance. It's consequence. Well, it's interesting to think about how did this happen? I mean, every other assembly that the children of Israel have had where they've been addressed as a nation was done either by Moses or by Joshua. We see that often, that they would be gathered together and Moses would speak or Joshua would speak. But here, there's no speaker. There's no Joshua at this point. We read in chapter 1 that he has already passed. He's gone. There's no central leader. There's no spokesperson. But God somehow speaks this message to this people, this congregation, and he's able to convey it in a way where they know it's from him and he's able to provoke a response from them as they hear How did it happen? I believe it happened like this. Is that there was a national realization that people came to as they looked at their condition only a few years into this new chapter in their existence. And they realized, we screwed up. We have made some serious compromises in what God has told us to do and it is going to cost us big. And the realization of that came over them And it affected them internally, and it resulted in a loss of their joy. Now, this is what happens in the heart of a Christian, even today, when they find themselves on the road, the pathway to compromise. The Bible says that God is a potter, and that his people are the clay. That illustration is employed throughout the Bible to illustrate the relationship that God has with us. And if you think about the way that a potter works with clay... It's essential for the potter to be successful that the clay be completely yielded into the potter's hand. Sometimes it happens as a potter works with clay that there's some corruption in the clay, a rock or maybe a hardened piece of clay that hasn't been worked out. And and so every time the potter's hand comes over that spot, it, it frustrates what he's seeking to do. 
and he puts pressure on that hard spot or that corruption, and he tries to work with it. He tries to move it. But ultimately, as long as that corruption exists within the clay, no matter what the potter does, a point is going to come where that vessel is going to become marred in the hand of the potter, and he's not going to be successful in doing what it was that he wanted to do with it. Now, when you're that clay, and God is seeking to mold and shape you into a vessel that's fit for honor, and there is those areas of our lives, those compromises, or we find ourselves in the wrong way, doing the wrong thing, we feel it every time God's hand hits that spot. We feel the pressure of his hand on that area of our life that we're holding on to or that we don't want to let go of. And when we feel that feeling, it's an emptiness. There's a hollow void inside of us, a joylessness or a joy loss, if you would, as we realize that something's not right and we somehow know internally that if we don't get this right, it's going to come back to bite us at some point. Something is really long. Now, For you and I, oftentimes, it's a case of just simply repenting. We repent, we give up, we say, Lord, take this part of my life, be my Lord, my all in all. And so often, God is able to just lift us out of the place that we're in and set our feet in the right path. With these people, however, they've been warned. They were warned more than ten times thus far not to compromise in this way, and thus... When they make this decision, God's declaration to them is that you're going to ride this out. We ought to beware because that can happen to you and I. Is that we can find ourselves in a particular form of compromise in our own lives. That we repent and God receives that repentance. We're forgiven. But we're going to ride the storm out as we find our way back to the new path. We see this here, this joylessness there. We come to the second landmark in verse 6, and that is that you must, if you're living this way, become insulated. Notice here. It says, And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Now we saw this verse back in Joshua 24 in the close, and we commented on it a little bit there. But here's the idea is that individualism replaced a sentiment of, of uh, national unity there uh, in the people. Now, here's what was happening. For the past 60 to 100 years of their history, the mainline trend of the people was to live righteously. That was the in thing to do. When Moses was there, and then when they were fighting the battles with Joshua, nobody was sinning. People weren't living in compromise. They were following the ways of the Lord. They were keeping their oaths and the laws, the commands, and and everybody knew it. And so no one was sinning outwardly during that time. So the trend, the cultural norm, even here in this day, is, hey, we do what's right. We're the people of God. But what's happening inwardly, secretly, is that they've begun to compromise. They're not living the right way. There's been a divide between what they profess and what their behavior says that they believe. And so the natural recourse, once that happens, the way I'm behaving doesn't line up with the way I'm believing, is that now I need to isolate myself or insulate myself a little from others so that what I really am in secret isn't exposed in the general assembly. And so they're becoming isolated here from the rest of the people. One of the things that I'm growing to appreciate as I uh, get a little bit older, is listening to my father talk about the old days. We talk on the phone, or he'll come to visit, and, and he loves to talk to me about what it was like, you know, being in school in the 50s. And, and he tells me, you know, the stories about how when he was growing up, he only knew one other, you know, one friend of his who had divorced parents. Out of all the people in his school and in his neighborhood, never there was only one family where the parents were divorced. And he loves to talk about that. He loves to talk about how even the bad kids, the punks, as he calls them, as he tries to, you know, modernize his lingo a little bit. He says that even the punks would tremble and be petrified if the teachers threatened to call home because if you got a phone call home, even if you were one of the bad kids, you were going to get a licking, you know. And he loves telling me about that. 
He loves telling me about how, you know, guys and girls would, you know, flirt and, you know, whatever. But it wasn't like it is today because the girls wouldn't give it up. That's what he says. He says the guys still tried, but the girls wouldn't do it. And, and he said, and the parents were an integral part of that. And he loves to talk to me about those days and what it was like. But then he always says this. He says this. He says, Nick, it isn't as though nobody sinned, but they didn't do it out in the open. He says they didn't wear it on their sleeve. It wasn't, you know, who knows what was going on in the homes or in the hearts, but it wasn't normal. And that's exactly what was going on in Israel at this time. It wasn't normal to be living in sin. It wasn't outward for them to be rebelling against God. But inwardly, they were. There was a rebellion. There was compromise going on in their lives. And when a Christian in this day, today, is living in a state of compromise, the the first thing that happens is that there's a separation between my private life and my public life. I cannot afford to be who I really am in public because what I really am is a compromise to what the ways of God are, and thus I must become private and guarded. And thus, the second landmark on the road to destruction is that now I'm, I'm isolating myself. I'm becoming inward. I don't want to be integrated with the body of Christ. I don't want to get to know people. I want to stay as far away as I can and still have the appearance as though I'm right in there with them. I need to be separated. The third one, and the slide gets a little bit steeper as we progress, the third landmark is that you you have an impotent testimony at home. Notice in verse 7. It says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. So he's reaching back and reiterating some of the history. And it says, And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers... Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. How does it happen that only one generation out of the greatest victory and move of God in a nation that's ever happened on the planet, that only one generation removed from that, the people are now apostate and there's a whole new generation and it says that none of them know the Lord. Here's how that happens is that once there becomes a separation internally between what I profess to believe and the way that I behave, I no longer have the authority to convey what I believe or profess to the people that are closest to me. Because if I profess to follow God, but yet by deeds I deny Him, then the people that I see, which are my wife and my children, they're going to see through that testimony. And so... I have a choice now. I can either teach them the ways of God and let them see the inconsistency between what I say and what I do. Or I can choose to remain silent and hope that they just kind of catch the flow of what is supposed to happen in their lives. Bobby always says that there are, working in the prison, he always says that there are two people that you can't fool. He says inmates and children. They see through everything. They've been through it all. They, you know, inmates have. And he said that the other are children. They just perceive things. And when there's a rift between who I am as a dad and the way I behave, you know, I'm sorry, as a Christian, and the way I behave if I'm not living that way, my kids are going to see through that. And though they maybe don't have the words yet to express it, they know it. And there will come to an age when they realize it fully. They say, yeah, they taught us this but they didn't live according to it. And that's how a generation becomes lost. God lays the responsibility of passing the baton of the faith to the next generation onto the parents, especially us dads. It's our responsibility to teach our kids the ways of the Lord. We have to teach and show them. And that's impossible to do unless we ourselves are filled with the Word of God filled with the Spirit of God, and we ourselves are in a relationship with God. That's what enables us to give them a witness that works in our lives. 
Now, I want to say something that's real important at this point, and that is this. Is that even if you live the perfect witness before your children, and you're diligent to pass it on and to make sure that they get everything that they need spiritually and to pray for them fervently, that's your part and it's your responsibility, but there is also a part that God plays in the equation and in the factor. And God still has to work in the individual's life and bring them to himself and reveal himself to them in order for them to have that real faith, that real work within them. And the result of that is sometimes they go astray for a season. and Sometimes for a long season. I was just walking in here and I heard Bobby in the hall talking about the Sweeney boys, you know. And you know Matt Sweeney. He shares here. He's one of the pastors here at the church. And, and Bobby was reminding someone about how both of them went astray for a time. Brought up in the church. Taught the ways of the Lord. Prayed for. Led. Had a great example. You know, Their father is another one of the pastors here. And yet for a season they went astray. Until God got a hold of their lives himself. And then the fire became real. And the relationship became there. So don't be discouraged because you say, well, look, I've done it, and I don't see the fruit in their lives. Just keep praying, keep waiting, keep hoping. Keep sowing the seed of the word, and keep praying for them. And God's going to come through in his time. But they're individuals. They are souls. One more thing on this. There's a difference between being unequipped to raise your kids in the Lord and unempowered. To be unequipped means that you say, well, I just don't know how. I don't feel like I have the right tools. Well, that's very simple. Just fall in love with Jesus and let the fire spread. If you're unequipped, God can work through that and he can reach the next generation. But to be unempowered, which is the problem that we're facing here in the text, to be unempowered means that there's something that's removing the impact of my testimony in the lives of my kids because of my behavior. I'm living in a way that's offsetting or disqualifying the things that I'm seeking to teach them. And that's when you lose a generation. And so we see that they have no testimony at home. It's the third landmark on the road to destruction. Number four, and we find it in verse 11 through 13, is that they are no longer ashamed of their sin. They're moving further now. Verse 11. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Ashtoreth. Baal was the most prominent god of the Canaanite pantheon. He was the god of protection, the god of fertility, and the god of a a fruitful harvest. Ashtoreth was his female counterpart. It tells us here that they bowed themselves down and they served the gods of the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now, to bow down means that they partook of the rites that 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 pointed to the worship of these false gods. Now, what they believed is that when Baal, who was the male head prominent god, when Baal would mate with Ashtoreth, the female counterpart, that then those powers were released. And so the rites of worship in that Canaanite culture is that they would go to the temples, they would hire temple prostitutes, both male and female, They would partake in every act of sexual promiscuity in an attempt to imitate the gods and thus incite their release of power themselves that they might then receive what it is that they're seeking as they enter into these rites and these rituals. Now, the problem with that, besides that it's completely godless, is that it had a cultural allurement to it that caused the people of Israel to be intrigued and to want to know about it. And as they did that, they became engrossed in it themselves. And they became corrupted um, by uh, the, 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 the act of doing these things. Now, Baal and Ashtoreth do not, for the most part, live today as deities that we you know, serve, that people bow down to. But in spirit, the worship of them lives on in the sexual promiscuity that we see, not just in our country and in our society, 
but that's really overtaken the world. An obsession with sex, an obsession with the sensual, and incorporating that into every area of our lives and what we say and how we live. Now, obviously, for them, this resulted in a whole swath of unplanned pregnancies. They had a solution for that. They would serve another god of the Canaanites called the Molechs, and they would offer the children as living sacrifices to the Molechs, believing that it would be, for them, a sign of prosperity and blessing. And so you can see the moral landslide that was created through this thing, and it was what God was seeking to have them to be eliminated. But, but here's what happens to us, to the Christian that's on this path, is that I've gone down the road of compromise, and I've gotten to a point now where no longer is it just secret and inward, but now I'm going to live it outwardly, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to change my belief to make my behavior now acceptable. I knew it wasn't right. God says it wasn't right. But this is the way that I live. And it's now acceptable in our society. It's no more done behind secret doors. So I'm going to change the parts of the Bible that condemn or don't condone the way that I'm living. And I'm going to make that the new thing. And that's what happens. That people begin to live contrary to what God says is the acceptable norm. And now I'm going to justify it or I'm just going to live that way and I don't care what anyone says. I don't care even if God says it. But know this, is that once you hit that landmark on this road, understand that your path is about to become a living hell. Because look what happens next. And this is landmark number five on this path and that is calamity in verse uh, 14. It says, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Five things happened as a result of this moral landslide that the people had fallen into. Number one is that their possessions were plundered. They began to lose everything that they had gained and all of the riches. You remember that God had spoken about the houses that they didn't build and the fields and vineyards that they didn't plant and the olive groves and how God had just blessed and prospered them. But they lost their possessions. Number two, he says... There, uh, that he sold them into the hands of their enemies. That is, that they lost their freedom. They lost their ability to move about freely and to be an independent people, but they were taken captives. And those that in the last chapter, they were taxing, now in this chapter, they're being taxed by them because they let them live. Number three, he says he, uh, that they could no longer stand before their enemies. That is, that they lost their confidence and their strength. Moses said, if you walk in the ways of God, that none of your enemies will be able to stand before you. But here we see that they're not able to stand before them. Number four, it says that they would have constant opposition. He says that wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. And so no matter what they did, it was just constant frustration. And then finally, all hope for future blessing was gone. As it says there at the end of verse 15, it says that they were greatly distressed. It means that there was a squeeze, a slow squeeze being placed upon them and, and that they were completely running out of air. Like, you know, you, you hear about someone who falls into wet concrete and if you fall into wet concrete, the thing that, that kills you there is that, that as the concrete begins to cure, Every time you take a breath and your lungs deflate, your body cavity shrinks a little bit. And, and as the concrete fills that space, it, it gets to a point where you can no longer take a breath in and you ultimately lose your life by suffocation because you can't breathe any longer. And that's the idea behind this distress is that little by little, your walls are closing in and all hope of escape is being taken from you. Literally, they lost everything. And here's the warning is that that can happen really fast. Within one generation, the people of God went from on fire, revival, blessing, victory to a place where now they've lost literally everything. When I was 18 years old, I said no to God. He gave me four years. My first 
contact with a Christian when I was when I was a freshman in high school. What are you, 14, 15 years old then? And for four years I watched. You've heard some of the stories I've told you about the different encounters I had with Christians during those years. But on my 18th birthday, I was given an ultimatum. And I said no to God. I said, no, I don't want God in my life. I want to do it my own way. I don't believe and I'm not interested. By the time I was 19 and a half, a year and a half after that point, I can testify to you that all five of these things happened in my life. I watched, I can mark from that point that I said no to God, that my possessions began to be plundered. It seems if I got in my car, I hit a deer and totaled the car. That one by one, all the things in my life that were of any value to me were being damaged, destroyed, or ruined, taken out. And, and, and it was frustrating to see those things d- destroyed. I watched my freedom disappear. I'd always had a strong moral stand being brought up in Catholic school and such that I would never use drugs. But I lost the ability to stand against that freedom and gave in to peer pressure and started to use those things. And I found that I was being chained by them. I was losing my freedom in it. Losing the wholesomeness of life. My confidence and my ability to stand. I lost the ability to talk to people. I remember being so frustrated my first year in college. Because I couldn't make friends with people. I couldn't talk to them. It seemed like there was such a spinning of thoughts that was whirling around in my mind that I couldn't slow it down enough to just even make a friend with someone. And I was losing it, literally believing that I was going insane. I remember coming to a point you know, where there was constant opposition. No matter what I did, it seemed like it was frustrating. If I chose a path, that path would come to an end. If I got into a relationship, the relationship would come to an end. And no matter what I did, it was like, it was like the hand of the Lord was against me for everything. And I remember one night going into my college dorm room, my first year in college. I was there by myself alone. And I shut the door and I shut the blinds of the windows and it was late at night. And I remember I screamed out to God and I literally told him to leave me alone. I said, leave me alone, God. I don't care if your people are praying for me. I don't care. Just leave me alone. Stay out of my life. Literally losing all sense of sanity and coming to a point where all hope for future success was gone. I wanted to kill myself. That was the state of my life at that time. And by the time I was 19 and a half, thank God I had the sense that I went back to the person I was with when I said no when I was 18 years old. And I said, I'm ready to say yes now. And I accepted Christ. And I watched God do a work in my life, taking me from the road to destruction and putting me on the highway of holiness and giving to me a future and a hope that only God can give. This is never the end of the road for the person of God. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. I wouldn't be here tonight, and probably you wouldn't be either, if there wasn't a nevertheless in this life. It says that God raised up judges who would set them free for a season. As we move through the rest of the book of Judges, and we see these judges, here's what we're going to discover for ourselves. We're going to see through each judge an attribute or a series of attributes, things that God gives to us that make for freedom within our lives. Ways that we can avoid the way that leads to destruction and find ourselves on the path that leads to life. Because God's desire for us is not that we should die in the place of destruction, but that we should find the way of life. And the hope that we have is that it's never too late to get on the right road. The rest of the chapter reiterates the sin cycle that they found themselves on. Notice in verse 17. It says, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord... They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he delivered them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. 
And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. The sin cycle that they found themselves on for this 300 year period of time consisted of these four stages. Number one is rest. It says that God was with them all the days that those judges lived and there was peace in the land. And we'll see that frequently throughout, that there was rest in the land for 40 years or 80 years or 20 years. But then after the judge would die, there would be stage two, which is rebellion. The people would again slip into the ways of compromise and sin and idolatry. That rebellion would then be met by stage three, which is retribution. Their own ways would be returned upon their head and they would become slaves to their enemies. And then that retribution would end with repentance. As it says that the Lord heard their groaning and was moved to pity because of the oppression that they were under. And then that repentance would result in the bringing up of a judge, which would bring them back into a season of rest again. And then the cycle would start over again. And, And this is the cycle of their existence during this time. It doesn't have to be our story. God has made it, and he's made a way for us that we might walk the right path. He's given us the power of his spirit. And as we get into chapter 3 and then 4 and through the rest of the book, God's going to give us the keys to staying on the straight and narrow. What does it take in the life of a child of God? What does he give to us and supply that we don't have to live in the sin cycle continually? How do we apply this as we come to the close of this somewhat dreary chapter? It does get a little bit better from here as we get to see the judges. But how do we apply this? I believe there's two ways to look at it. Number one is to look at it through the lens of our nation. You can't deny that the United States of America was founded upon the principles of the Word of God and the ways of God. It's true our forefathers weren't perfect. They were you know, flawed, they were sinners just like you and I. But to reduce them to just say that they were deists and that there was nothing more to it is absurd. When whole segments of our Constitution are taken right out of the Bible and to say that God wasn't a part of it, that He didn't have a hand in establishing us as a nation is almost blasphemy. But since that time that our nation was founded, there's been compromise. And that compromise has led us down the way that leads to destruction as a nation. And I don't know where the crossroad of compromise was for us as a nation, but I do know this, that we've rebelled against God. That we've turned from Him in every way, and we've embraced every form of wickedness that can be embraced in this world. And we've basically said, God, we're not interested in you. And if we were to ask ourselves the question of where does this road end that we are on, the answer is destruction. We are on the road that leads to destruction as a nation. And we're worse than Egypt. We're worse than Canaan. We're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because we were founded upon the principles of godliness. And God blessed our nation beyond the blessing that he's given to any nation. And we are without excuse completely. I don't know what the future holds for us as Americans in these days, but I do know a couple things. I know that short of a miracle or a revival, we are headed for an economic disaster that we've never even thought of, that we can't imagine, that we can't conceive of. I don't know if you watched last Tuesday night the president's address, his remarks on this Syrian crisis. If we were to intervene in the way that they want to, and, you know, strike them surgically, but sting them or whatever the case might be, that could very easily trigger a war that I'm not sure we're ready to handle. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that we are living in some very dark days in this country, in this 
This nation has passed every single landmark on the road to destruction, and we have just unheeded the warning. The other way to look at this is the personal way. That is to ask ourselves the question personally, the road that I'm on right now, where does it lead? Where am I? Where am I going? Are you seeing the landmarks of joylessness or joy loss or isolation or an impotence in your testimony to your children? Or just outwardly you've thrown off all restraint and you're just living according to your flesh and whatever you want and you've justified it. Maybe you're in the place of calamity where you're watching your world fall apart. The Bible says that he came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. And the reason why he's shown these landmarks, not just here, but throughout the whole Bible, and he's shown you tonight where you're at, is because he wants you to have abundant life. And he's waiting for you to call out to him that you might receive uh, his restoration. And our part to play is simply to bow before him, to give our lives to him, to yield completely to him, and to get back on the narrow road. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for uh, giving us this instruction tonight in the word. Lord, you don't just put the pleasant things on the pages of scripture for us, but you lay out for us all that's taken place, that we might heed the warnings. And you've given us the warnings because you want to see us return. And so, Father, tonight I just pray that for each one of us here that we would experience your refreshing, your reviving. Lord, that you would take this time and search our hearts. And if there would be anything in us, Lord, that you would see as an act of rebellion or a place of compromise or a place where the clay has become hardened and the vessels become marred, Lord, we would ask that you would heal us that you would restore and forgive and that you would give life. Help us, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit. And in these days, Lord, we pray that we would be the light that shines in a dark place. As we see the writing on the wall for our nation, Lord, I pray that we as Christians would shine. I pray, Lord, that if there be in us any gap between what we profess and the way we behave, you would shine your searchlight on it right now. That You would bring it to our awareness. And that by the power of your Spirit in us, you would give us the ability to repent, to turn to you, and to live completely for you. Lord, you're our hope. You're our strength. You're our salvation. You said that we can do nothing without you. And so we ask, Lord, be our Lord again. Be our God. Be our light, our wisdom, our path. Lead us, Lord the way everlasting. Fill us with hope and help us to see, Lord, that you love us so much that you proved it by sending your Son to be the substitute for our sin. Fill us now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.